Well, hello, and welcome to uh, Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is a special episode that we have coming up for you guys because, uh, first of all, I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side, and of course we have. Oh wait, it's not David this week. Who, who do we have as the skeptic? We have Alan. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> But, and guess what? We have our, we finally have our uh, special uh, episode, um, round one of the sh- uh, Shroud Wars, as Tyler has called them. Um, so yeah, me, me, me and you, Dale, uh, mano a mano. <laughs> there you go. Finally, a fair a fair discussion. We got both sides. Alan, uh, I'm excited to have Alan. He was kind enough uh, to come on and, and give his take, which I know many of these skeptical listeners will definitely appreciate. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to to say thank you very much, Alan, and welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Excellent. Um, so what we're going to be discussing today, uh, we're focusing specifically on can we prove that the Shroud is medieval? And for this round, uh, it's going to be Alan that's making the cl- the affirmative claim that, yes, we, we can. Um, and we're going to be discussing various evidences that he has. Um, so, you know, talking about defending uh, Sturp, first of all, um, and, or atta- and or attacking Sturp. Um, secondly, the relevance of the dating. So if, you know, this is my argument where if it is medieval, so what? Um, and then we get into how to three evidences for how Alan proves it is medieval. So firstly, we have the memo, memorandum from 1389. Um, then Alan's going to be going into hit the pilgrim's badge um, or the medallion argument. Uh, and then finally, we're going to finish off with the carbon 14, uh, the slam dunk, as Alan has called it. Um, but just okay. before, just, oh, sorry, go ahead, Alan. No, I was just laughing. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, absolutely yeah yeah i I just wanted i promised alan before we uh get into the debate proper or the the discussion proper i just wanted to turn it over to alan to give sort of an introduction as to who he is and his involvement in the shroud so so alan yeah feel free to take it away and give a you know five minute intro or something like that yeah okay well um I have to say, when I was preparing for this show, I was looking at stuff all over the internet, and uh, I came across a a Gary Habermas video, um, and um, interestingly, Google gave me a list of other possible videos I might be interested in. Uh, One was was Flat Earth Fully Explained, one was UFOs 50 Years of Denial, and the last one was Has Man Ever Set Foot on the Moon? Well, it seems to me that that seems to be the way that the shroud is viewed. Um, either it's the real deal, or it's a delusional fantasy. It's, it's you know there are these two camps that are pretty far apart. Uh, but originally this wasn't the case. Before the the C14 um, uh, um, um, studies that that were done. Um, there were a number of um, uh, documentaries that were pretty much pushing the shroud as being the real deal. And, yeah, I was caught up in that. Um, uh, 
uh, when I, I first saw the documentary on the Shroud, I was amazed, I was excited. Um, I was a Christian at the time. Um, I, I, it wasn't important for my faith uh, because um, uh, it, it, whether it was um, an icon or a relic, a real relic was irrelevant. But, of course, it was really interesting. If only there was a piece of cloth that bore the image of a crucified man with realistic wounds that was actually a photographical negative and contained within it 3D encoding that would be totally beyond the capability of a medieval artist. At least that's the way it was presented. Uh, additionally, we also had this idea that there, there, there was pollen on the shroud that proved conclusively that it must have been in Jerusalem. The, these are the things I can remember um, from that time. Obviously, there are more things that were included um, uh, within the documentaries. Um, do, you, do you mind just a quick yeah. uh, note? Like when when uh, about was this that you saw the doc? Was it the eighties or nineties? Or I think it would uh, be seventies, eighties. Okay. Um, Obviously, before the um, before the C fourteen, um, so it, it would be probably early eighties, then I guess, wouldn't it? Something like that. Was... Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, good. Um, so. Um, Anyway, that was uh, what the, the the documentaries concluded. Of course, then we had the, uh, the carbon fourteen analysis, and well, that was pretty much sure. It um, it was kind of like oh, a bit of a disappointment. Um, you know, you're kind of keen to actually see this thing um, um, as as evidence of something unusual and spectacular that that, that occurred, but. There, there it was. I think, it, you know, it, at, at that time, although I was a Christian, I didn't have any problem with with um, with um, uh, uh, carbon fourteen dating. Um, that was what scientists were saying. Definitely occurred, uh, and I accepted it. And well, <laughs> I still do accept it. I don't think anything has changed. Um, uh, changed there. So, um, okay. So that's my intro. So that's uh, so that's Alan, everyone. That's Alan in a nutshell, so to speak. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I just wanted to give Alan a sort of a brief intro. Uh, obviously, through my shroud series, people know about me and my stance and how I came to the shroud. Uh, interestingly enough, it, it was also through Gary Habermas who kind of introduced me to taking it seriously as well. Um, so. Um, yeah, I think what we'll do at this point is we'll we'll get straight into it. So the first uh, item that's on up for debate, um, not so much related to the date, but just sort of in general, Alan has critiqued uh, the STIRP scientists and, and said that they're a bunch of religious fanatics or uh, pseudo-scientific nutters, I think is one of the, the quotes that I, I got. <laughs> I love that one. But, um, uh, so, Thank you very so, yeah, much. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so yeah, we, we heard uh, Barry give his sort of defense and I wanted, Alan, here's your opportunity to sort of get into what, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean when you call them practicing pseudoscience? Uh, um, okay. yeah. So what is it, this pseudoscience? Firstly, what I'd like to do is tell you a, just a, 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 an anecdote, a, a, a short story of something that occurred to me a few years ago. Right, so so I was visiting a UNESCO World Heritage Site in England, um, Iron Bridge in Shropshire, 
Now, the Iron Bridge was the, the first bridge made completely of iron. It's an impressive sight, as you see it's on the river. Um, if you look at the reflection of the bridge, it forms a complete circle. So it's, it's, it's quite unusual. Um, and, of course, it's uh, one of the uh, founding things of the, uh, of the Industrial Revolution. Um, I had a look in the museum next to the site and discovered that the, the authorities there had encountered a problem in presenting the history of the, of the thing. In addressing the who, when and how, they discovered that although they knew how it was cast, they had no idea how it was built. All the records were lost. So the, the bridge was built about 1780, and the, and the only way it would stand up was if two giant pieces of iron leaned up against each other. But, but how would you lift the pieces and position them precisely? But the, the, the typical method of lifting uh, at, at this time was block and tackle as, as used on uh, uh, wooden sailing ships. Well, look, this bridge was 400 tonnes. Well, that was, wasn't going to happen. So, but they managed to, to find a clue in some papers that were around at the time. Uh, they, this concerned the, the, the building of, of a, a large scaffold. So in the museum, they created a model of how they thought this would look, uh, with ideas on how it was constructed. I'm sure that um, you, Dale, and any people listening will probably get an idea of what I'm connecting this to. However, in 2002 or thereabouts, uh, they came across a Swedish painting that portrayed the bridge during its construction. There were a couple of derricks, and indeed, they had only used block and tackle. The moral of the tale is... Firstly, don't be so arrogant as to assume that people in the past don't have the ability to construct complicated things. That is a problem of your imagination, not their ability. Secondly, don't jump to conclusions. Failing to even investigate how people of the time would approach the problem is poor science. So, we're going to be kind of uh, harking back to that. Um, constantly, uh, in that a lot of the things surrounding um, the shroud are just that, that um, people have come to a, a conclusion um, uh, not based on following through uh, uh, properly in the, using the scientific method. Now, as far as Sturp is concerned, um, I'll just give a brief intro of what they were. The, the Shroud of Turing Research Project uh, was an American team formed to study the Shroud. The members mostly coming from weapons labs in the, in the US. If the Shroud was a bomb, these were the guys to research it. Uh, Tom de Muller, is it? Um, pronunciation. I was a founding member of Sturp and was president of the organisation from 1978 to 1996. And in a presentation on the Shroud, he said the following. It is the same with this tool the Lord has given us. He has given it to us not to be out there talking about the Shroud, but to be doing diligently the work he has set before us in our research so that, so that the tool is available to others. It is a marvellous instrument that he has provided. There are some things that are very important. Back in 1978, when I first became associated with the effort, I had just spent a year on my knees before the Lord in all areas of my life. 
when I first met John Jackson, John was the pie piper of the whole show. Mike Miner, he, he was persistent and, and drew me into the centre. And I remember at the uh, Air Force Academy, we had a meeting and we, we were told that we had permission. And from there, John and Eric set about bringing a scientific team together. He moved, uh, we formed a, a non-profit making operation. We raised money, brought the team and equipment together, tons of equipment, and choreographed a test program in a dry run over Labor Day weekend. It was all done in a pretty short period of time. So the, the leaders of Stuck were driven by a strong religious calling to promote the artefact as the one and only Shroud of Christ. John Jackson was the main man and somebody who also had a strong religious conviction. I'm not going to go into things that he said, but he was saying similar things um, in correspondence. Um, I do get the idea that the, the whole thing, from what he was saying, was actually put together quite quickly. Uh, and I noticed uh, last week that Barry was suggesting it was quite a long, drawn-out 17-month period or something like that. But um, anyway, there you go. Um, once John Jackson and Eric Jumper had seen the results of the PPA, uh, VP8 image analyzer uh, on 1931 photos of the shroud, they jumped at the idea that the 2D image actually contained 3D information of the body encoded within it. So, you know, if you, you, I think you've probably all seen this. Um, you, you put the picture and, uh, and you get this kind of relief, um, uh, this face pump, uh, jumping out at you um, uh, um, based on what the software produces. Now, what they didn't do, or at least they, did, they didn't seem to spot, um, was the, um, the fact that the burn marks on the shroud also produced strong 3D results. Perhaps they might not have jumped to, the, to, to their conclusions. They assembled a team which sceptical outsiders pointed out that for the most part consisted of scholars from Christian religious denominations with a vested interest in the cloth. And indeed, if you, if you look at the, the Sturt members, you know, I think Dale have produced them, you don't get a full list of the membership. You usually get the weasel word including uh, the the following so what one assume, assumes what they're doing is trying to hide the fact there are members quite a few members who have religious affiliations um harry gov the inventor of the um uh, accelerator mass spectrometry spectrometry um system that was used later with the um uh, shroud said that uh, there were 40 certain members of which there were only one skeptic people were walking around wearing crucifixes which i don't if you, if you were truly looking for a team of unbiased scholars well this wouldn't be it also, if you look at the makeup of those with scientific credentials, it tends to be mostly physicists and technicians and photographers. Where are the textile experts, experts, medieval relics, proper forensic scientists, biologists, art historians, hematologists, bio um, biochemists? You know, um, there was actually quite a restricted um, a list of people that that uh, that, uh, that um, uh, John came up with. Um, 
even before the test, Sturt members were talking of the image being produced by radiation and its evidence of, uh, of forming conclusions. Um, and this is evidence of, of it forming conclusions before the experimentation had even began. So um, if you were to Google plus pseudoscience plus STIRP, you would get over a thousand results. So I, you know, go go by all means go away and read some of the things that uh, that have been said about uh, pseudoscience. Um, now, the initial assumption that the 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 Sturt members should have had was that the shroud was a medieval forgery, because that is what history seems to suggest prior to that particular point. Not only that, uh, uh, relics of which we have untold numbers, virtually all of which are, are fake. So the assumption must be that somebody created this. And given um, the photonegative effect and the 3D effect, they should have been looking at the ways that a medieval craftsman would have been able to achieve those results. Because what, what you actually do seem to see is that that gets brushed away quite quickly and they, they kind of gallop towards having a, a, a sort of conclusion that this thing wasn't painted. Um, and they don't really look at it in any depth at other alternatives of the way it could be created. Um, please think of the story I've just uh, talked about. Um, now, with, with regards to, 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 to individual um, details of where they might have been uh, pseudo-scientific, um, uh, I, I don't really want to go too much into that um, because I'm not an expert there. Plus, I think sometime in the future we may ha have somebody who's much more uh, qualified to be able to <coughs> to go into that in more detail. Um, so when we're looking at pseudoscience, essentially we're looking at people not following the the proper scientific methodology um, and they're um, making their conclusions push um, the push the evidence in a particular way they're putting the cart before the horse this is what pseudoscience is about and and uh, and the stuff that we were getting from stirp um, on the whole, I'm not saying that there wasn't some uh, excellent um, uh, science uh, analysis there, but but the overall uh, um, conclusions uh, that they came to um, were begging the question, really. They were, they were pushing an agenda uh, rather than anything else. Although, I mean, they may not themselves have actually have, have thought they were doing that. Um, uh, I, I noticed that um, um, Barry Schwartz uh, last week had said that he thought that um, post-1988, when, uh, when they did the uh, carbon-14 dating, that... Um, Pretty much most of the work that had been done by 
um, pro-Shroud researchers was pseudoscience. Um, um, but I think he held to the point that the, the stuff that the, these guys were doing were, were all written up um, in peer-reviewed journals uh, and as such um, were um, good science. Um, and I would say that um, we may come across uh, areas where... Um, things supposedly passed peer review, which shouldn't have passed peer review. Um, And we'll come on to those um, either later in this um, show or or perhaps another one. So um, that's that, that. In summary, that's that's what I'd like to say about stuff. Although I could go on a bit longer if you like about um, the summary of what summaries they they came to. Um, on the whole, but most most of the areas are. It's not so much stuff um, that's a problem. Um, um, somebody has said that with um, if it hadn't been for pseudoscience. There would be no question now post-1988 carbon-14 test because there's only been post-C14 uh, um, um, uh, research um, that's been set up to try to rubbish um, the C14 data that's kept the whole thing alive. Uh, and without that, it probably would have fallen over by now. Um, right, over to you, Dale. All right, perfect. Yeah, uh, thank thank you very much for for giving your take on that. Um, obviously, I don't agree with much of, of what you what you're saying there because, uh, in terms of who the STIRP scientists were, uh, just in who in terms of who they were, the, these were qualified experts from some of the world's most prestigious institutions that that were selected, as, as Barry mentioned, for the purpose of you know, fulfilling their expertise. Uh, you know, we had image specialists uh, that, um, you know, like Don Lynn. Um, we also had Ray Rogers, who I think you, you even admitted he was a, a good chemist. I know you don't agree with everything he says, but, you know, there there is, he was in charge of the chemistry division. We, um, John Jackson, um, yeah, he, he was a, a physicist uh, for the U.S. Um, Army or Air Force. So Air Force, yeah. Air Force, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, in terms of who these scientists were, the, these are qualified experts. Um, that their areas of specialization were suitable for the tasks that they were assigned um, in terms of studying the shroud. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they were uh, good scientists on that front that were qualified to do the tasks that they were assigned to do in terms of answering the question, how, how were these shroud images formed? Um, now, one thing Alan has mentioned in, in the comments is um, on this front, and I don't know, he hasn't made it here, so this is based on comments he said, but he's like, yeah, but certain experts with qualifications can get defrocked, right? There, there are historians that deny the Holocaust and they get their credentials taken away or, or that sort of thing. But I would just mention no one that I'm aware of on the STIRP team has has ever had has ever been defrocked because of their work or even their conclusions 
about the shroud. I mean, sure, there there are certain like John Jackson. He he's a Catholic. He um, he believes in a supernatural mechanism. That that's what he advances for. But even with that, it, like he hasn't been decredentialed or defrocked in that way. Um, so I, I don't think sort of going after who these people were as scientists is the way to go. It's, no, no, no I'm, I'm not saying that. And I think um, uh, Andrew pointed out uh, um, uh, last time that um, it, it's not whether or not you've got qualifications that matters. It, it's yeah. the case of whether or not you're doing good science. So Okay. So I'm not knocking people whether they have um, uh, whether they're qualified or not. Um, I mean, there is an issue if whether or not they're they're, um, they're doing research out of their normal um, uh, speciality. That that I mean, clearly we do get that. Um, uh, not so much here, but but in um, in in later um, researchers. Um, uh, we we get that a lot, you know. It doesn't matter what subject, um, they'll, they'll they'll provide some research on it, despite the fact they don't have any um, particular uh, knowledge in that area. Um, so it's it's not about the qualifications; it's about whether or not they're doing good science, and it and it really doesn't matter about whether or not something is peer reviewed. Since again, the the other issue is whether or not. Um, the, the, the things are replicable. Um, it's you being able to to actually replicate the, the the experiments and come up to the same conclusions. Those are the things that that, that really matter. It's not the fact that you you've, you've managed. You know, you don't prove anything by by um, getting your work published in a peer-reviewed um, um, a science journal. So so yeah yeah I. I I'm not saying, I'm not trying to to put these guys down um, Mm -hmm. from that point of view, Uh, but it doesn't matter what their qualifications are. If they they nevertheless do do bad science, yeah, and and Ray Rogers is a a case in point. Uh, As I said, he is a a good chemist. I think he was... um, if you're wanting to to know about the stability of explosives, he's your man. And uh, um, it, but it, it doesn't mean to say that um, that you can't be influenced and start going into pseudoscience where you come up with a conclusion and then you try to come up with the evidence to support the conclusion. And probably we'll find out about that a bit later. So so anyway, there you okay. go. So. Uh- Okay, uh, so so yeah, uh, th- th- I was I was getting to this to that stuff. So that was my next uh, thing was okay. So what about the methods? Uh, were, was the methodology that Sterp uh, employed uh, pseudoscientific in nature? And uh, I mentioned on the show on Barry, um, you know, we have freely available to anyone that wants to check it out that that sixty-two page operational test plan that took seventeen months of painstaking effort. Um, to go through, and it was submitted and and approved um, because it was so rigorous. Uh, Walter McCrony submitted his own test plan, and that was rejected. Right? I think Barry mentioned that as well. Uh, if not, then I'm I'm mentioning it. But what I would say: so, have you taken a look at their operational test plan? Like, what what specifically in their test plan, in terms of their 
methodology, which they, they followed meticulously, right? They didn't stray from their methodology or planned operational plan. Um, like what, what would you say specifically in there is pseudoscientific? How, how is, or is it just because they, it's the conclusions that they draw that you're taking issue with, not... The, 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 so it's the way that they, they approach the um, experience uh, the, the the studies, uh, for instance, say with John Jackson, who will be has already convinced himself that the image is created by radiation, but it's completely unscientific. There is no, there is no basis for that at all, and therefore looking at air gaps underneath a um, a shroud lying over a person. Well, that is. That's ridiculous. There are, uh, and how on earth you could actually even do that experiment it is it makes no sense at all. It presupposes that it is possible for the for a body to emit radiation um, over over a gap, i.e., a non-contact um, uh, 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 formation. Um, so it's it, it's kind of embedded within the way that they approached um, this thing. I'm not saying that that's con- conclusively the way. I mean, I mean, as you know, um, um, Walter McCrone was probably the most famous um, um, scientist they had um, on the panel. And um, uh, 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 he um, wrote the book, um, literally, um, a microanalysis and um, uh, microscopy. Um, uh, I think it's five, five volumes worth of the, of the thing, uh, and he was renowned worldwide, renowned. But of course, Shrout, the Sturt wants to 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 push him aside because he came up with completely different conclusions than everybody else, namely that uh, that there was no blood whatsoever on the shroud, uh, and there was tons of paint um, specifically on the image area so so um, so the, the, the contradiction you, you, you know going on within within the actual uh, stirp team so so um, I don't see any reason why his findings um, shouldn't be up there with um, Alan orders or Heller's um, uh, uh, results really so uh, it's not uh, okay so this is not okay you know, and, and I both know that that, that um, it's it's not as clinical as as it's made out to be this was uh, people were were, were um, producing their own results within the STIRP team prior to STIRP actually even coming up with their um, with their summaries um, because it um, Wranglings going on between the members, so it's um, you know, I, I mean, specifically, I'm not, I'm not trying to get at Sturp, uh, you know, as, as far as I Sturp is kind of like a science uh, club, <laughs> you know, um, they're, they're coming from 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 a sm- mostly they're coming from um, a small group of people that know each other um, through. Um, 
uh, weapons research um, facilities. Um, so they didn't actually go out and try and find the best in the world uh, at particular things. I mean, you could say, yeah, well, they got qualifications and they did the best they could. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so if I could just, because uh, I'm trying to get my my part out in full so like uh, i guess you're doing the interruption in interaction part throughout um oh, sorry so well okay you you carry on and i'll keep quiet then for a while no worries i'll try to i'll try to be quick so so yeah basically as alan has mentioned so my next point was about well look they've got credible peer reviews this is a, a point that barry uh hammered home now this is part an important part of the scientific method it Sure, Alan's correct that it's not the be-all and end-all. I, I link to sources that are not peer-reviewed myself. Um, uh, I, I think um, Alan knows, like Macron, he didn't publish his work. He, he was the editor of The Microscope, right? And I know this is a, a point that Alan wanted to mention. So, you know, so Barry made a, a point that, well, this isn't really rigorous peer review in the way that the STIRP scientists got their results in independent journals, um, they had they've had they had to go through um even more rigorous peer review pr process in some cases uh to get their work published um so yeah i i want to support alan in saying that well yeah just just because something's in the peer review doesn't mean it's gospel i mean obviously the 1988 radiocarbon 14 is in the journal it's in a peer-reviewed journal nature right so um but it, it adds a layer of credibility, meaning that I think you need to take the results seriously. And in terms of STIRP itself, okay, so individual team members like John Jackson believe in this radiation hypothesis. That's not a part of STIRP. You'll never see that in STIRP's conclusions, right? And that, that is available on, on Barry's website. So I'm trying to focus it on, on STIRP. I know that individual STIRP members um, and I that just because they come up with supernatural art uh, theories doesn't mean you should reject that. That that's having a bias against the supernatural that needs to be justified as part of a philosophical debate or, or that sort of thing on the possibility of miracles. But in terms of stir proper, John Jackson never wrote anything in his official capacity as the leader of Sturp or a part of Sturp talking about his radiation hypothesis. I mean he. As far as I know, that didn't even really come up until 1990 when he first published a paper talking about his cloth collapse hypothesis and that sort of and that sort of thing. So I just wanted to clarify that. It, their Sturp's conclusion was: Look, th these are our conclusions. It's not a painting. It's not a scorch. It's not uh, a, a photograph. Um, as to what it is, we don't know. We, we've scientifically eliminated these options um, and through the facts that we've discovered. And in, in terms of the results, I mean, Shroud skeptics, including Alan, I think, he may take issue on certain ones, but many of the facts, like body image superficiality, body image uniformity, or the, um, the tri-dimensional, uh, I know Barry doesn't like when you say it that way, because it's slightly misleading, but there's there's top there is topographical information encoded in the image densities. The, these thing these are the types of facts that Sturp discovered, and it's in the peer-reviewed literature. Um, 
And Shroud skeptics don't deny this. Walter McCrone doesn't deny these facts. Uh, Harry Gove himself, when he was doing the carbon-14, was shown some of these results and admitted, yeah, these are true. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. Sterp scientists showed him some of these things, and he agreed about them. So I, I'm wanting, when I'm establishing Sterp, I'm saying, look, these, these minimal relevant features, at least, um, are true, and these are in the peer-reviewed literature. As to conclusions about, well, is it radiation or that, uh, sure, that's more controversial. Um, so let me think. Um, so yeah, um, in terms of pseudoscience, in, my, in closing, just to finish this off because it's going so long. So yeah. pseudoscience consists of statements, beliefs, or practices that are claimed to be both scientific and factual, but are incompatible with the scientific method. Um, there's nothing about Sterp's plan, operational plan or practices that I can see that didn't follow the scientific method. Furthermore, same with their conclusions. They, they did not um, put their conclusions before uh, the scientific findings. They, sure, as Catholics, they might have wanted it to be true or believed it would it would be true and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, people like Alan Adler, they did take... Uh, measures to mitigate against some of the counter theories, like as to what Walter McCrony might bring up and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't see them as practicing pseudoscience, and that's, that'll be my sort of final take. Um, Alan, as you're the guest, if you can really quickly, you know, two or three minutes, if you want to give sort of a final take, and then we can move on to the next issue. Yeah, well, uh, just looking at the Sturt conclusions, um, they're, they're astounding, really, uh, in what they're saying. Um, I think, um, although you talk about topographical information, and that's kind of like now looking at it in a different way. I mean, that, what they were saying was that um, analysis by the VP8 image analyzer shows that the image has unique three-dimensional information encoded in it. Actually, it doesn't. It doesn't contain any 3D information encoded in it. Coded elite, but but that's what that's the assumption that they're making, or that's the conclusion they're coming to, without going through um, a full analysis of the way in which the VP8 analyzer actually works. Um, they didn't do it. Um, they 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 how to say they they conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an. It is not the product of an artist. I mean, how can they say that? That is so. It's it's it, it's just completely wrong. The blood stains are composed of hemoglobin and also give a positive test for serum a serum albumin. Well, again, that's a question mark. Uh, as you probably know, somebody disagrees with that. The image is an ongoing mystery, and until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by this group of scientists, or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. Um, so, okay, yes, I mean, I do agree that the certain things, um, that certain tests that were done, which you know, do show that the, that the image is restricted to the the fibres of the um, uh, of the cloth. Um, you know, I'm not rubbishing everything that these guys actually did or said. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that is that the whole 
um, focus uh, was 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 not taking into account that it almost certainly was a, 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 a medieval forgery to start with. Um, uh, and therefore, the, the whole approach, go back to my story, they for, forgot, they they looked at it, uh, they knew the sort of things that these people were using, and they just disregarded it. And that's exactly what Sturt did. Okay, so, cool. So I'll with that, because it's already almost been an hour, and we're still on the first day. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, I'm happy to give you the the the, the final word there, and I, I think Alan I raises. Think some, we'll go on, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just say Alan raises some interesting questions, and my my replies here are, are trying to be general because it's about defending Sturb. We're going to be doing round three where we tack get into the details of well, is it is there this three dimensional feature you know and, and raise those sort of issues. So I, I'm avoiding that on purpose. I'm saving that for round three, and I was just sort of giving a general defense. So, so with that, let's move on to our next issue. Um, so this is going to be uh, my unique take, uh, and it's on the relevance of the dating. So. On this, this is going to be the only one where I'm going to I'm going to try to initiate this one because it's my unique idea. So, um, basically, try to remember in context what's happening. So the way the way I see it is that the skeptic in this case is making a claim, right? They're they're saying we can prove the shroud is medieval, and the fact that it's medieval proves that it's a fake. It, it can't be a G-belief authenticating event for the truth of Christianity or, or a, a sign or a miracle, for, if people don't know my terminology, that Christianity is true. So as someone not advancing the claim, I'm perfectly able to go, okay, well, in the first place, I can question your evidence that it is medieval. But for the sake of argument, I'm just going to put on my skeptic's hat and let's pretend that it you can prove that for a second. I want to challenge you on the second component of your argument, because this is a multi-component argument, right? There's at least those two elements, that the shroud is medieval in the first place, and that given that it's medieval, that means it's a fake. It can't be used as a uh, miraculous proof for Christianity or something like that. Um, so on, on this front, I'm, I'm questioning this, and I've interacted, tried to interact with reasons that skeptics might present um, in my series. I, I've dealt with at least uh, about five of them. So if you remember from my series, the first one was the argument from implausibility. It's implausible that God would do a miracle or, or do a miracle at, in the medieval period versus in ancient times or something like that. And I, I've tried to address, well, no, I, I don't buy this reason either. God is perfectly able to do miracles at any point in history. I mean, Certainly, skeptics, whether they think it's a crock or not, they will they see the validity in trying to come up with modern miracle healings or that sort of thing, right? So, I, I think I've defeated this argument. What about the argument from ad hocness? So, this is because I came up with a an ad hoc historical situation. Maybe Jeffrey was praying one day for a sign, and for whatever for one reason or another, God actually answered him with poof a miraculous 
shroud image. Um, and you can, well, this is ad hoc. Of course it is. Um, I'm not suggesting this as a positive historical hypothesis. I'm just saying, look, this is an equal possibility. It could happen for any number of reasons. Um, now, here, here's one of the more substantial ones. Then there was three, the argument from the lack of sufficient attachment. And this is where I've countered that with the uh, picture or the painting, right? It, there's, I have a painting of Jesus on my, in, on my wall, um, made in 1985, let's say. If God wants to poof and turn that into a miraculous image... Well, we know there's a sufficient attachment because there's a reasonable connection. I know that this picture is meant to look, meant to portray Jesus, the Jesus of Christianity. And if that's coupled with a miraculous uh, image, well, that's good enough to be a G-Belief authenticating event. A chronological connection is not necessary. Um, then there's four, the argument from contextual indicators. And this is what I think is going on with you with most skeptics like Sarah and that sort of thing. Well, it's a burial cloth. It's not just a picture. It's a burial cloth. This is why all Christians assume well it must must have belonged to Jesus. Then, if um, you know, it's it's got to be necessary because of this. But again, I, I don't think I think you need to hold your horses here. If this is your argument that you're trying to use, because. It could be possible that God is using this. He knows in advance that people will make this false assumption. He's not lying to the people. They're falsely coming to their own assumptions. Why would God Why would God do that? Well, maybe that was the only way to preserve it. If he did a miraculous piece of Jesus toast or something, someone might have eaten it or someone would have thrown it away in the garbage or something, and then it wouldn't have survived into the 20th century when we started learning all of these amazing features about it. Um, and then finally, fifth, is my personal bias. I, I'm biased. I'm accused of goal, moving the goalposts or special pleading and, and that sort of thing. And no, I'm not. I, I've really thought this through. I mean, I, I've I haven't seen any reasons from skeptics. I'm hoping Alan will provide some. But I've, I have yet to see even one reason prevented by a skeptic apart from just saying, oh, that's bias or... I don't buy it. Okay, great, but I want you to. I want to hear your reasons for it. You're making a claim, and I, I've tried to help you out. I've come up with these reasons and tried to refute them. Right, so I've I've sat down and thought about this. But am I just being double standards for the shroud? Like I'm not coming up with this idea because of the shroud. I'm consistent here, and here's one example. So with the Quran, I studied numerical patterns in the Quran. Um, all of these numerical patterns that are presented by Muslim apologists uh, apply to the 1924 version of the Egyptian version of the Arabic Quran. This is the one that 80% of the world's Muslims use today. It doesn't apply to the Yemeni Quran. That hasn't been studied. It doesn't apply to older manuscripts of the Quran. Certainly, we don't know if it applies to, quote unquote, the original Quran uh, that that existed in the time of Uthman or, or that sort of thing. Um, but still, I'm willing to accept it because Allah, if, is that, if that's real, if he's real, is able to do a miracle suited for the 20th century, given his Molinistic providence. And I'm will, if there are these numerical patterns in the Quran and they are proven to be of a supernatural nature, I don't care if the Quran dates from 1924. It's sufficiently attached to Islam proper, to the truth of Islam. It, 
it would attest to the truth of Islam. So I'm not being inconsistent here. I'm consistent, and I've really thought through this. Um, so yeah, with, with that, that'll be it, and I'll let Alan have his take. Okay, right. Well, I'm trying to keep the things short and sweet here. I mean, obviously, you've got to admit that most Shroud supporters, Shroudies, as I doesn't like to, to be called, um, won't know what you're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, this this will be something that that's important to you, um, but for virtually nobody else. So whether they're sceptic or not, probably listening to this program, they will not know what you're talking about. Um, just, just to counter quickly on that, and sorry, I shouldn't be interrupting you at all, but. Um, uh, true, uh, fair enough, but it should be, maybe it should be important to them. I mean, it, we, we have people that think of new things and new ideas. Uh, I'm sure Albert Einstein was going against the grain when he was overturning new, Newtonian physics with special relativity and that sort of thing, right? So, yeah, that, that's it. And I'll shut up and let you say everything. So, okay, well, um, I'll briefly say that <clears throat> I'm not sure that you have thought it through in terms of um, the reality of it. Um, so, for instance, in this particular situation, we have you suggesting that it just pops up in some way um, in front of the uh, Deshanes. Um Well, how? I mean, you're saying that the image... Uh, where, you know, why would the Deshanes at great expense... Um, um, create um, a cloth 14 and a half foot long and three and a half foot wide that is not a burial cloth. <laughs> we don't have burial cloths that look like that. Um, it's completely unusual. So you can't say it's a burial cloth. It's, why would they even create it? Um, you know, it's it's like Mr. Dijane finds this cloth in his attic takes it out one day and spots an imagery on it. Ooh, says Mr. Dishane, we could put some blood-stained spots on that and and, um, and, 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 and convince people it's actually um, the, the, the burial shroud of Christ. So, well, you know, I mean, how do you... Do you imagine that, that, that uh, God actually creates the, the cloth as well uh, as the image? And, Why not? It could so, be. Sorry? Oh, I was just saying, it, it could be. I mean, if we're talking miracles here, the sky's the limit. I mean, he, he could have... and, and therefore, there's nothing I can say. I can't, I can't disagree with you on that because you could be talking about unicorns or anything. Yeah, I mean, if a god exists and has the powers that he has, he could produce any of those sorts of things. Um, but there's nothing I can say to 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 um, to counter that, other than to observe that I've never seen a miracle. <laughs> so I don't I don't know why you would assume that miracles can occur. But I mean that's a completely different subject. I think we should stay well away from. But yeah. I'm just stating that I just don't have a response uh, really, other than how would it work in. In practice, yeah. I mean, you know, I did, did, you would think that the Dishanos would go around telling everybody this thing just appeared out of nowhere. It was, you know, what the heck is it? You know, you know, so this is this is David, and I'm uh, exercising producer's right to cut in. Sure. Uh, sure. It's I invented the right. 
uh, I don't. There's no book that says a producer has the right to cut in, but you know, was, yeah. my my, my yeah. microphone. I mean, you know, <laughs> my mic, my own button. Uh, so, producer's right. I, I told you this wasn't going to be over in an hour. We're <laughs> so I, I'm actually not. I'm not cutting in to complain about the time. Um, I am cutting in to ask you a question, Dale. Sure. Um, so just as I asked Barry one question, I will ask you one question about the point that you are on right now, and then I will turn the mic back off. Uh, it is this. So this this kind of uh, God could have taken a fraud and made a miracle out of it uh, type of argument, because God can make a miracle if he just wants to convince people, you know, with a uh, she believe authenticating event. He can do it out of literally whole cloth. Um, the problem with this argument to me, and if I could get you to address it, in fact, I'll turn the mic off uh, before you start addressing it, uh, and so you can have the last word on it. If that's what God was trying to do, then why something like the Shroud, where we have another several hundred years or, of debate over its legitimacy, because if, if what God wants to do is say, hey, I'm God, I'm here, then why not do it in a way that he knows will convince most people as opposed to doing it in a way that will just create another thousand years of debate? Go ahead. Okay. Um, so, yeah, for, first, uh, just before I address that, I, I wanted to point out that Alan is absolutely right um, on something here that, yeah, I, I have an 11 premise argument. Um I'm I'm just starting with premise eight and assuming okay, I, premise seven of my argument is that miracles are an equally possible or equally probable option. Prem, obviously, that's built on a foundation of of my other premises. Premise number one of which is that God exists. Um, so, Alan, if if you don't start with that assumption, um, then there is this issue of prior probability uh, that could come into play um, in terms of taking away you know, these these options that I'm bringing about. So Alan is correct to bring that uh, up, but it, it's outside of the scope of my Shroud series. Now, as to David's question, um, oh, shoot, don't forget it. <laughs> um, uh, what the heck did you ask me? Sorry, uh, what, Alan, do you remember what he asked? My, my no, I, I, I'd switched off completely. <laughs> Okay. Okay. That's that's okay. I've I've been not paying attention to your conversation. Uh, also, uh, okay. I remember it now. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so okay, here, I'm going to switch back off again. So here's where I'm going to resort to my Molinistic defense. Um, I, I'm just appealing that we don't we don't know. There could be any number of reasons why that particular miracle had to had to occur at that particular time. Um, remember, God has got the overall perspective. His overall goal, or at least one of them, is to save as many souls as possible. For some reason, doing that miracle in the medieval period could have res could result in more souls being saved. Now, it might not even be, we think, oh, well, we're here now, so his ends must have been totally realized, right? Like, it was obviously to have Sturp. That, that was the end goal. Not necessarily. I mean, God's aims for this image might not even be realized until the year 2050 or the year 2250. Um, 
so yeah we we're not in a position to know or to rule out let's say um the fact that it could be entirely possible that god would have done a miracle in the medieval ages um it it wasn't it wasn't he wasn't taking a fraud necessarily and turning that into a miracle um i'm not sure what you mean there like it's not like i'm not suggesting that oh the shroud was painted and then god went poof or something like that um although i wouldn't rule that out either but i'm i'm just saying it could be poof and the shroud totally comes into being out of thin air um so so yeah I, I hope that answers your question that's my answer is again i'm reverting back to this molinistic thing we, we're not in a position to know why the heck god would do it this way and because of that you can't establish your claim that the dating is significant in terms of proving it's a fake if if we can prove it is a miracle um, that's obviously the assumption or a g-belief authenticating event um so yeah i hope that answers your question there david and yeah, I'd, I'd just like to say, I mean, I could say that if you were, if, if you were going to um, have um, a, um, a, a real relic appear out of nowhere, why on earth would you choose the Middle Ages where it's going to be surrounded by an, an infinite number of fakes? It just makes it look like a fake then, doesn't it? But I mean, I can't win this argument because you, all you're just going to say is that, yeah, but like 300 years down the line, you know, with um, the flapping of a butterfly wing, all yeah. of this comes out to you. I, I, I can't win this argument. Um, it's not an argument I should even get involved with. I just, it's just—it's a statement that you're making, um, Dale, uh, which is which is fine. I suggest we go on to the next. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I was I was just happy because I was sincerely interested to get a better idea of why you guys just aren't even considering this. And you're the the first skeptic who's really gone into detail. That all the other ones just kind of. Uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't buy it. No, okay, great, but I, I want to hear your reasons for it, right? So, so yeah, it's absolutely correct what you say. You can't um, rebut this Molinistic defeater that I'm I'm offering. That's why I see it as so good and universal. Um, but under that same vein, that that's that can explain why it's hidden, right? It's it's sort of the same problem as the hiddenness of God. Why isn't it? But uh, whenever you you're uh, bringing up magic is what this is we're not on the same planet we're not even in the same universe i get so um there's no way i can um, um kind of discuss this anyway i suggest we we go on to the next which is the um the, the memorandum is that yep. Is so, so this, yep so so now moving on uh sorry guys um now we're going to get into okay so let's forget about this relevance of the dating. Now let's see if I can challenge, or, or if Alan can establish, is the shroud in fact medieval? And we have three different evidences, and we're going to do the first one. So this is the uh, the Bishop uh, Memorandum of Bishop Darcis in 1389. So Alan will introduce that. Okay. So the, the practice of faking holy relics was widespread, as I've just said, during the Middle Ages. And indeed, the first documentary evidence we have that mentions the Shroud is a very sceptical 1390 report um, from uh, French uh, Bishop Pierre Darcis to the then anti-Pope Clement VII, denouncing the Shroud as a fraud. 
Apparently the shout was being used as a religious scam to fleece gullible believers, and the bishop was appalled that the shroud was bringing the church into disrepute. He informed Clement that the, the shroud uh, had also been displayed by the Duchani family in Lyry uh, about 35 years earlier, and his predecessor, the then Bishop of Troyes, uh, Henri de Poitiers, had been suspicious of how such a, med- a major relic could suddenly appear in the hands of a French family, and inquired as to the origin of this remarkable artefact, and quickly discovered it was a fake. Uh, briefly, I'm, I'm going to read... Um, an abridged version of the memorandum, uh, the, this letter um, to um, to the Pope, um, highlighting a few points. Um, That'll save you the trouble, so good. <laughs> okay, right. We're going to do that. Right. The case, Holy Father, stands thus. Sometimes since uh, since in this diocese of Troyes, the dean of a certain collegiate church, to wit that of Lurie, falsely and deceitfully, being consumed with a passion of avarice, and not from any motive of devotion, but only of gain, procured for his church a certain cloth cunningly painted, upon which by a clever sleight of hand was depicted the twofold image of one man. Uh, that is to say, the back and front, he falsely declaring and pretending that this was the actual shroud in which our Saviour Jesus Christ was enfolded in the tomb, and upon which the whole likeness of the Saviour had remained thus impressed, imprinted, uh, together with the wounds which he bore. Um, the Lord Henri of uh, Poitiers, a part of pious memory, then Bishop of Troyes, becoming aware of this, and urged by many prudent persons to take action, as indeed was his duty in the exercise, exercise of his ordinary jurisdiction, set himself, uh, set himself earnestly to work to fathom the truth of this matter. For many theologians and otherwise persons declared that this could not be the real shroud of our Lord, having the uh, Saviour's likeness thus imprinted upon it, since the Holy Gospel made no mention of any such imprint. While, if it had been true, it was quite unlikely that the holy evangelists would have omitted to record it, or that the fact should have remained hidden until the present time. Eventually, after diligent inquiry and examination, he discovered the fraud and and how the said cloth had been cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who had painted it, to wit, that it was a work of human skill and not miraculously wrought or bestowed. Accordingly, he began to institute formal proceedings against the said dean and his accomplices in order to root out this false uh, persuasion. They, seeing their wickedness discovered, hid away the said cloth so that the ordinary could not find it, and they kept it hidden afterwards for 34 years or thereabouts down to the present year. Now, this um, memorandum would have been written about 1389, and no doubt dare will say that the actual letter itself was undated so we can't be actually clear on the on, on the date of that yeah um now as it happened pope clement the the seventh who was actually an anti-pope uh, set up in opposition to pope urban the uh, the sixth in rome was a relative of the Dishani family and so would be inclined to defend them against this charge of faking the shroud if it had no basis clearly 
It did have a basis, however, so Clement instead ordered the the Shahnis to stop declaring the shroud to be the genuine article and to to display it as a representation of the shroud of Jesus only. But he also granted indulgences to any pilgrims who who went to see the representation. So his cash-strapped relatives still got the pilgrims' uh, money uh, they were seeking via their scam in the first place. Um, it's clear that Darcy's uh, knows a lot about the shroud. He, he knows uh, it's not a traditional painting. Uh, he knows that it's being used to separate the religiously minded from their money, evidence to which we're going to come on to um, um, shortly with the, um, uh, with the medallion. Um, most important information we have, though, um, is that it is a fake. Um, the Pope thinks it a, a fake. Darcy thinks it a fake. Henri de Poitiers thinks it a fake. It has no provenance. De Charny doesn't say where he got it. It, it just turns. It just turns up in 1355. The De make no attempt at defending the allegations of it being a fake or the canons of, of Lurie. It was presented as a fake. It was treated as a fake. Lyri is a tiny place in the middle of nowhere. That is not how relics of renown are treated. Um, note the gigantic um, chapel church that was built to house the uh, the crown of thorns. If if it was considered to be um, a uh, a renowned relic, it would have been put in the middle of nowhere. Um, they knew how to treat um, 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 uh, substantial um, relics in, in, in that particular day. So so most of these things are centred around um, it being a fake. Um, indeed, uh, last point here is that a uh, hundred years later, uh, in 1449, there was a guy in Netherlands who had actually seen the shroud and said, uh, a certain sheet on which the shape of our Lord Jesus Christ has been skillfully painted with remarkable artistry, showing the outlines of all the limbs and with the feet, hands and sides stained with blood as if they had recently suffered stigmata and wounds. Um, so even a hundred years later, um, it this thing hadn't got off the ground, as it were. It uh, it it hadn't actually appeared. Um, um, uh, it, it hadn't been discovered as being a, a substantial relic. Um, uh, what I could say is that, uh, just an aside there on, on, on what that guy was saying, it does seem to suggest that the, the image was an awful lot more distinct then than it is now because of the way that he described how, um, how clear the blood was. Uh, and it's true that the, the, the shroud is continuing to uh, to fade, um, and it's still fading even now while it's locked up in an airtight box filled with argon, uh, which, again, seems to suggest that it couldn't possibly have lasted 2,000 years. But anyway, that's, that's, that's my main argument there. Um, um, I, I, I can deal with the... Um, historicity bits now Dale or do you want to attack 
Yeah, so so if if you're going where I think you're going, so basically yeah. just just to start, um, before I lay out my case of why I think the memo is is not persuasive evidence, I just wanted to throw it over quickly to Alan. So you know, within a few minutes or so, we have a comparison test, the Gospel of Mark. This was a document written 40 years or so after the events. Um, it narrates that Jesus walked on water. It narrates that Jesus was crucified before Pontius Pilate and buried in a tomb. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to get, we have this historical document. Alan sort of mentioned him before in regards to the memo. He's like, well, look, it, it's right there in English. There's nothing in this memo that suggests the shroud isn't a fake. Um, so I, I wanted to get Alan's take. Well, there's nothing in the Gospel of Mark that says Jesus didn't walk on water. So why don't... First of all, do you believe that the Gospel of Mark's accounts are literally true? If so, why or why not? Uh, well, no. Um, uh, let's uh, okay. So, what we need to look at here is is what it, uh, uh, historians um, would consider the ideal situation with regards to um, evidence from the past. Um, now. What I've done here is is to to get um, that list from Bart Ehrman, who has, has listed um, a number of points that we need to uh, look at. Um, so, in an ideal situation, we would have sources that are firstly numerous, so that they can be compared to one another. Uh, the more, the better. Secondly, derived from a time near the event itself, so that they were less likely to have been based on hearsay or legend. Um, thirdly, were produced independently of one another, so that their authors were not in collusion. Uh, fourthly, do not contradict one another, so that one or more of them is not necessarily in error. Um, uh, fifthly, are internally consistent so that they show a, a basic concern for reliability. And sixthly, are not biased towards the subject matter so that they have not skewed their accounts to serve their own purposes. Right, so um, since he is a New Testament scholar, obviously those things are going to be something somewhat pertinent to the Gospel of Mark. Now, I, I have to say, I haven't actually gone away and and, and found what um, 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 Bart's uh, view is, um, but what I have done is kind of put a, come up with a table of those six um, um, wishes uh, and where I think the memo lies and where Mark lies. Um, so uh, briefly, so, so Mark, we don't know who wrote it. We only have copies of copies of copies of Mark. The first full Mark we, uh, we have is centuries after the original. We can't be certain what was in the original, and we know that it has been corrupted, scribes adding material to it. Written 40 years after the events described in another language, in another country and culture. There are no indications of any pre-Mark traditions within the text. Although Paul's writings come before Mark, there is very little commonality between them. Is Mark making the stories up or are they based on some form of oral tradition? So uh, um, with regards to, to some of the lists, all right, so, so uh, numerous. Um, 
how many are there? Well, it, when we're talking about the um, the, the, the the memo, um, uh, no doubt Dale is going to be bringing another of the letters that um, that were uh, written about this particular event. So there are, in fact, a number of uh, of uh, pieces of information we have around this. Um, uh, with Mark, nope, we don't have anything. Mark, it's the first gospel to be written, um, and at that time there wasn't anything else. Um, so that, uh, it doesn't go derived from uh, uh, near events. Uh, memo, definitely, absolutely right on on the ball. Uh, the, the guy's writing as it happens. Mark, it's 40 years after, so no, in the case of Mark. Independent sources, um, yes, with the, with, with the case of um, uh, the memorandum. Um, we've got some people, uh, various people, um, um, uh, the Pope, etc., um, writing about this, so lots of different uh, sources with mark none at all um so well, all we've got is mark on its own um uh, do not contradict each other the memo fails this <laughs> um, we have got contradiction i i think you could say it was a contradiction each person's got their own state it isn't that anybody's contradiction contradicting anything Darcis is saying here directly um it's just that other people are saying other things which you might uh, think um uh, are in conflict so um they both i mean it's um, probably but that's not applicable um to mark um, are they internally consistent? Yes, absolutely. Um, makes everything that Darcy says makes perfect internal consistent sense. And uh, of course, I, I think you could say that that would also apply to Mark as well. Um, I'd have to be a bit picky if I started to say it was no. Uh, not biased towards subject matter, certainly not in the case of the, of the memorandum. Um, Darcy is, is uh, definitely biased um, uh, on his viewpoint, and definitely Mark is as well. So, no. So Mark fails pretty much all of them except one, um, and the memo passes um, all two. Um, so yeah, well, that's it, really. So yeah, I. Uh, so when we're looking at, uh, at, um, uh, at, at uh, some of the gospels, um, you have to uh, take into account how far away we are from from the um, from the actual documents themselves. Um, and remember that 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 the, the 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 gospels that come after Mark are just copying Mark. Uh, so, so they 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 they, are, they there isn't any um, uh, 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 agreement between them from that point of view. Except Mark is agreeing with himself, you could say. Um, but I don't really want to go into too much detail on on Mark. I'm just saying in passing, um, um, if you, you're comparing these two different things, well, they are just chalk and cheese. Um, um, so yeah, over to you then, Dale. Oh, uh, yeah, so uh, thank you, Alan. I, I appreciated that comparison because, uh, um, yeah, the, the Gospel of Mark is comparable in the sense that it was written 40 years after the fact. Uh, same with this memo. Uh, this uh, The events of when the Shroud 
uh, first came about is around the 1350, mid 1350s, 1355 to 1356, in in about that range. Um, and the events that he's referring to, the inquiry, oh, some of the, some of the events that he's referring to, yes. The, the main ones that I'm concerned with, but oh, it, okay, like the, the inquiry held by his predecessor, Henry de Portier, and I, I didn't say it as French as Alan did. Alan did a better job there with that. But uh, yeah, uh, the, these are occurring 40 years after the event. That This memo was written 1389 or 1390. I take the 1389 as being the more probable uh, date. Doesn't, doesn't matter. It's, either way, it's about comparable to the gospel. So I agree 100% with with uh, Alan's list of Bart Amron's criteria. Um, I, I sort of phrased it into, okay, so we have three different tests that Christians can use, on a, that historians can use on a historical document. There's the bibliographical test. So this, Alan alluded to this, um, do we have the original autograph? Uh, how many manuscripts do we have and how early are they in relation to when the original was written? Uh, Alan also referred to the internal evidence test. So is there anything within the content of the document itself that can, you know, that we can make some conclusions on? Um, and finally, three, the external evidence test. Um, so are there any relevant historical circumstances or like bias or, or any external documents that are related to this matter? So this is how I'm going to be assessing this memo, just like I would any other historical document, including the Gospels, like the Gospel of Mark. So in the, in the first place, with this document, taking uh, the bibliographical and internal evidence tests combined. So what do we have? In the Bibliothèque Nationale of Paris, we possess two copies of this memorandum. Uh, they're labeled Folio 137 and Folio 138. Uh, as Alan alluded to, yes, I'm going to mention, none of them, neither of them is signed and neither of them is dated. Um, one is complete, the other is incomplete. Um, in terms of Folio 138, it is heavily edited um, and it's marked out as a first draft with underlines where they're crossing out certain words or, or violent expressions. They have the Latin word vacat, which means take this out. Um, and, and they're not even addressed to its intended recipient. So um, on, on that front, uh, sort of externally, there's no record of this memo at all in the Vatican archives or the official records, um, that's problematic because we do have our archived um, these other letters that I'm going to be referencing as well, and they're all signed and dated. Um, so this is this is problematic in and of itself. It should raise doubts. We're not even sure if this memo was ever ever sent, um, let alone received by the Pope in the first place. Um, now. So that's in terms of the bibliographical test um, and internal evidence test. Um, also, in terms of the actual Latin words, the translation that Alan read, we're not even, um, I didn't pay attention to this part, but there's certain words that we're not sure about the translation. For example, was it was it the, is uh, Darcy saying that the artist that created the shroud confessed to having cunningly painted it? Or is it an artist, as though some artist in general said, oh, yeah, that's that's painted kind of thing. There is a question mark as to what the proper Latin translation is of those words. Um, also, uh, we 
have no trace uh, or mention of this memorandum found in the uh, canon history of the. So we have access to um, the work of a collector and historian who uh, Nicholas Camusat, and he archived all of the diocese of Troyes. Um, you know, documents and history. Uh, this was in the early 1600s is when he did this. Um, there's no mention of this uh, of this inquiry, no mention of this memo. And this is despite the fact that he specifically mentions the Leary Church, Henry de Poitier, um, and mentions that Henry approved of the activities of Jeffrey the First. No and this is David once again. I'm cutting in because the conversation actually went quite long and we started to have some audio hiccups at this point and so we are going to uh, cut off at this point and call it a show i will give you part two of part one perhaps tomorrow we're going to require a little bit of editing i just want to warn you i've listened to a little bit of it i i produced this first part myself everything sounds okay uh, the second part of this conversation I did not produce, and um, I want to apologize to Alan. His uh, audio uh, suffered uh, as a result, we'll put it that way. And so, unfortunately, there's nothing that I can do to really fix it. I've, I've done everything that I could in post, but it's going to take me a little, uh, at least a day, to, to get that up. And so this is part one of part one. And tomorrow, the next day at the latest, you will get part two of part one. It's been a great discussion so far. I hope you all are enjoying it. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.